1: Ray, Good morning. Um, we're here today to talk about your wonderful work, Crossing the Color Line, Race, Sex, and the Contested Politics of Colonialism in Ghana, which, by the way, has been shortlisted for the Fagan Oliver Prize out of the U- UK for the African Studies Association, so congratulations on that feat. Thank you. Can you tell us how you became a historian?
0: Oh, gosh, that's quite a question. So I, I really became a historian because it offered a path to pursue questions that I became interested in as a young person. So rather than a sort of love of history, per se, that brought me to the craft of, uh, of, of history, it was realizing that the kinds of questions that I was interested around identity and race um, could be answered in the most fruitful way through... The lens uh, of history and so that's what really brought me
1: um, to study history. What kinds of questions? You said you talk about identity. Can you go a little bit further and then like extrapolating, you know, giving us, for an example, two questions that you pursued with this book?
0: Well, the really the questions um, that I pursue in this book really uh, were rooted in the experiences that I had as an undergraduate study abroad student in Ghana. So in 1993-94, I spent uh, my junior year abroad studying at um, the University of Ghana and the Legong campus. And it, it was in that moment that I sort of realized the way that race operates in the US was, was very particular and unique to the United States. And I encountered a, a kind of different racial landscape, if you will, in Ghana, and it made me very curious um about how race was working there, about questions around what it meant to be black there, how that was um, being constructed and 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 how the boundaries of blackness were operating there and and those questions really sort of stuck with me, and they've really been what I've pursued over um you know the last it's I can't believe over two decades. Um, in in terms of my research so in fact even when I got back from that year abroad I I wrote my senior thesis I I went to uh, UC Santa Cruz and I wrote my senior thesis on language acquisition amongst uh, multiracial Ghanaians Mm. and uh, and that was really a question of the relationship between language and identity and so those kinds of questions have continued to animate my research agenda um they're you know they're very much at, at you know part, part of what drives crossing the color line and they're also the questions that animate um uh, my new
1: research as well okay and why ghana
0: well very practically at the at the time uh that i wanted to study abroad there were two african countries that one could go to through the uc study abroad program um either ghana or egypt and by that time i was very much focused on West Africa um, in relationship to my family's own um, History which is rooted in, in the Caribbean or part of my family's history And so I was very much interested in pursuing those linkages and so Ghana was the obvious choice uh, and and then once I got there of course I I, I fell in love with it and and um, Had such a wonderful year and it was just it, you know sort of just life-changing experience um, and and again those questions were kind of so foundational um, and so compelling for me that it has brought me back time and again um, to Ghana as the focus of my research.
1: Okay, can you talk a little bit about the methodology um, that you took to write this engaging work and how you were able to weave together so many stories and, and broaden it to, you know, the broader themes uh, facing Africa as well as the world?
0: In terms of methodology, I think what I initially did, first of all, and I think this is something that I would say is really important, um, especially for, um, for Ph.D. students who may be going into the archives because crossing the color line comes out of um, the research that I did for, a, for my Ph.D. dissertation. And initially, when I wrote up that prospectus, I really thought I was going to be kind of continuing this question around the sort of historical position of multiracial people in in Ghana and from the pre-colonial to the colonial and into the post-independence period. And when I got into the archives, um, first in Ghana and then in the United Kingdom, I was really surprised at the Um, paucity of information that I was actually finding about multiracial people, but what I found instead was just this overabundance of material about interracial sexual relationships. So instead of kind of, you know, throwing my hands up in the air and going, oh my gosh, I can't write, you know, what I thought I was going to come to write. I just continued to follow that, that archival trail. Um, and, and I really went with that and it became, Um, you know, it it turned into a much different project, but I think one that is really compelling and and actually offers a kind of counterpoint to what we typically see in the literature around, um, you know, interracial sexual relationships, which is that in the context of the colonial period, in large part, um, they become prohibited because of the problems that the multiracial progeny present to colonial governments. Um, and in this case, the Gold Coast govern- government, colonial government, um, remained very much focused on the relationships and not the progeny, um, and so it offers a kind of a, a counterpoint to what we typically find. And I thought that was, you know, actually quite, um, quite interesting and quite compelling. And so I just really I went with that, and and um, so I was able to amass this huge uh, archive of of colonial documents. Um, mm-hmm. And within those colonial documents, um, spaces were opened up for people from the Gold Coast, Gold Coasters now we say Dhanaians, um to uh, offer their perspectives. Oftentimes, um, when I was working with the cases that were brought against European colonial officers for having relationships with uh, local African women, these cases were initiated by um, Africans who were disgruntled by these relationships. And so even though I was working largely with the colonial archive, um, I was able to find um, and use that archive and, and, and find African voices um, uh, and, and to read them carefully. And then uh, I complemented that with extensive research um, in the Gold Coast newspapers. So um, one of the wonderful things about doing research um, in Ghana is that um, from a very early period, um, Africans were setting up and running their own um, printing presses. And so there is a huge tradition of newspaper publication um, dating back to um, the uh, really sort of in a robust way, the last quarter of the 19th century onwards. Um, and so you have a very large corpus of African authored newspaper sources, which also um, provided a really sort of rich. Um, uh, source base for for myself to work with in, in terms of yielding African perspectives on these questions um, and then finally I, I worked really really hard um, to track down uh, family members of the people that I was finding um, in the, in the sources um, and to do uh, family histories and interviews and so that was a kind of uh, third um, third way and then the last thing that I would just highlight is that you know of course the the major absence um, across the various source bases um, are the voices of African women. Um, mm-hmm. And that was obviously very frustrating. And anybody who works um, you know with the, with these kinds of sources will will understand the challenge that that um, presents. And so, in addition to um, doing um, interviews with a number of women who um, were still living, um, I also used a, a kind of methodology which which I um, which I call reading along the seam. So we're we're familiar with the idea of reading um, along or against the archival grain, but this was a um, th- this was something that I tried to do where I would look at disparate accounts. Right. So if you had yeah, yeah. two men um, who were writing about the same women, perhaps um, a European officer who was charged with having a relationship with a woman. And um, a man who was trying to prove that that was actually the case, um, mm-hmm. and so they were obviously, you know, they had very disparate intentions. The European officer would want to exculpate himself, and so would want to um, show his innocence, whereas the African man would want to say this person is guilty. And in one case that I'm thinking of, it was um, it was the African man's wife that was in question, but the two men both agreed on certain fundamentals about this woman's movement. And so it was that idea of like looking for these places in these accounts where they had, they were, they had very different um, uh, intentions in terms of what they were trying to prove, but they agreed on certain facts, and that would allow me to sort of be able to say, okay, um, they, might be, they might be in disagreement about why she's moving across the colony in, in, in this particular way, but they all agree that she's doing that, and so that would give me an opportunity to kind of say, okay, So we know she was moving in this way. Why? Mm -hmm. And to be able to kind of speculate. So that was um, a methodology that I um, that I also employed when I could um, in order to try and uh, figure out what women were doing when they were not speaking on their own behalf, but rather men were speaking for them um, or about them.
1: And when women did speak, what did they say?
0: So in the interviews that I did, so I did two really um, compelling um, interviews, one with a woman named Felicia Agnes Knight, who in 1945 married um, a British district commissioner, Brandon Knight. Um, and theirs was the fourth um, the fourth marriage uh, that had happened across 1944 and 1945 that through the colonial um, uh, office and the local government in, in the Gold Coast into complete panic um, about the sort of epidemic of, of, of interracial marriage. Um, and they actually, you know, described it in these kinds of pal- pathological terms as a form of madness, etc. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, Felicia Knight um, uh, married in 1945, and she um, had been in a relationship with Brendan for several years before... Um, Their their church marriage um, they had they had wed by customary law uh, and the colonial administration was doing everything that they could do to thwart their their um, their civil marriage and so um, I interviewed her and one of the things that I I really remember coming out so vividly in that interview was the kind of fear that she had when Brandon went back um, so this was after their customary marriage and she was pregnant. And he was going back to England to um, essentially ask for his parents' blessing um, to come back and marry Felicia. And his parents were um, a very prominent diplomatic family um, and 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 she she and her family had this real fear that he wouldn't come back or if he came back, um, he would essentially say, I, "I can't marry you," and that she would be left um, you know, to raise this child on her own. And I remember one of the things that she said was, you know, at that that women who got mixed up with white men um were not well regarded by other Africans. Um and that's of course something that comes out very clearly in the newspapers where men, mm-hmm. you know, who largely they are men who are writing and who are who disparage these kinds of loose, immoral African women who are um, you know, uh liaising with with white men so it was, it was definitely that sort of fear of what you know what kind of fate would befall her if um, You know if he didn't come back and and make an honorable woman of her and in the end he did and and they did marry Even though um, on a number of occasions the colonial government um, You know would would write you know two days before their marriage was you know scheduled They they sent him off to you know across the colony in the end they they they, they went and and in fact um, all four of these all four of these marriages that happened between 1944 and 1945 um you know the men stayed on they continued to work through the end of the colonial period three of them stayed on through uh, through independence um, so that was but that was one of the things that i that that sort of fear of of being cast out of society um uh if, you know if if this marriage didn't happen and then from the other side the kind of um sense of understanding what she was up against on the part of the colonial government and, and other Europeans who were making um, their lives um, very difficult, but also that real sense of strength and commitment to her family and to her um, relationship. And for for readers, they might recognize the name because that's the, the, the my book opens with, with their story and it mm-hmm. opens with her standing at the gates of Flagstaff House as, as mm-hmm. Ru's ministers are coming in. And, you know, and lambasting them for, for threatening to tear her family apart because, um, during independence that when they were Africanizing the government service, um, you know, they, they, uh, terminated his appointment, but in the end, Nkrumah, you know, called her up to the office and was like, what's the commotion? And she pleaded the case and, and Nkrumah granted them a special dispensation and he was able to stay on and work, um, in, in, in Nkrumah's government. Um, so, so that kind of sense of real determination and being a kind of, um, you know, sort of fierce defender of her family was something that that came through. Um, and and then um, I'm thinking also of of Mercy Quadua Roth, who I also interviewed. Um, and she was a woman who uh, met her Swiss husband in the late um, '40s, and they and they married um, in 1957, right on the eve of Ghana's independence. And again, this kind of sense of, of, of a very independent woman who um, had moved to Kumasi and, um, you know, was really trying to kind of make a life um, for herself and, and, you know, kind of wasn't, wasn't was not on, on the one hand interested in courting disapproval from people, but also was really wanted, wanted to pursue, you know, the dream that she had for herself and when she met um, her husband Hans. Um, you know they they had a very long courtship um, before they could actually marry, but for her, and they also had a customary marriage before they married um, in a civil ceremony um, and and for her, that was what was what was important was that sort of the commitment he was making to her um, and and being sort of her understanding herself as a respectable um, married woman
1: so what kind of advantages would African women have? Through intermarriage or vice versa, white men with African women or black men with white women. Well,
0: you know the the the, the range of these relationships is so great um, in terms of what they entail. And so when I speak of a woman like Felicia Agnes Knight or um, Mercy Kwadwo Roth, um, you know these are women who had Lasting marriages, decades long, um, okay. and and they set up homes, and they were um, they were well taken care of by their husbands, but obviously um, they take they took extraordinary care of their husbands as well, and, and so there's a real you, you see in those relationships a real sense of um, reciprocity. Um, in other cases, especially cases in which um, you know. There, there weren't formal marriages, um, or maybe they were temporary relationships. The um, what the benefits were, um, it's a lot more difficult to to answer, um, and and especially kind of at at an emotional level um, because it's difficult to sort of gauge, um, you know, how emotionally meaningful these relationships were, and I think that that's one of the things that I really hope comes out in the book is that, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to, um, kind of say with any, in in a kind of emphatic way, um, what these relationships meant to the people who were in them. Um, but you know, if you see the cover of the book, there's a very striking picture of the three interracial couples, two of whom are seated with their. Children their young children um, and the one woman who doesn't have a child. I think she's actually pregnant um, In all likelihood those were French officers who had come over from the Ivory Coast um, and had um, Married these mar- married married in, in quotes because I don't we again We don't know what form of marriage it took if it was a customary marriage okay. um, or or not and um, we can pretty much say that it, it would not have been a civil or a church, you know, union. Um, and, you know, at that time period, again, people would have looked at those relationships and would have sort of dismissed them. Um, and in fact, in, in Ivory coast, there was a indigenous ban against these um, quote unquote temporary marriages, which was why these men were in all likelihood coming over to, you know, procure native wives in the gold coast. Um, and so on the one hand, one could look at that picture and sort of just say, you know, these, these relationships, um, didn't confer respectability on the women. Um, the men didn't take them seriously. And in all likelihood, um, you know, the children would end up being abandoned by their fathers. Um, that, that could be true. But when you look at the picture, I think it's a little bit more complicated, right? I mean, the very fact that in 1915, this, this portrait was commissioned is something that's quite extraordinary. Um, and all of the people in the portrait are wearing, you know, their best. Um, and so there's a real, um, kind of, of interest and commitment to memorializing these relationships. And you see that clearly, um, in, in this image. And moreover, you know the children seated on the mother's laps indicate that these relationships were at least several years old, okay. um, and so it. You know it, it. I think what I find is that these most of these relationships resist any kind of categorical reading, um, and really force us to think about the ways in which emotion, affect, love can coexist with racism. With colonial power, um, with gender inequalities, all of those kinds of things, and that um, you know that love, love and racism are not um, mutually exclusive. They actually can be quite interdependent practices. Um, So I think that that's something that uh, that um, that that really comes out in this book um, and makes it quite difficult to kind of tally up um, what kinds of, of of benefits accrued on on either side
1: company okay. And you've talked about informants. How did you go by getting interviews? What were some of the issues that came up? I mean, wasn't it easy process? I mean, you know what what things did you do?
0: So um, I, you know, I'm one of those people that like if I find a lead, I'm going to pursue it until the <laughs> end of the earth. Uh, and so. You know, for instance, uh, with these four marriages. So they took place between nineteen forty four and nineteen forty five, and so that gave me a sense of the possibility that some of the people involved in the in the marriages might actually still be alive. Um, And all I had to go on was um, was the name of one of the couples because that was it it, it mentioned four marriages but named only one. So I knew it was the last name was Knight. And I knew he was a district commissioner. Um, and so I uh, I just started um, at the same time going through all the personal files um, in the archives, but also just um, using my extensive networks in Accra and saying, you know, do you know of uh, a Knight family, a mixed race uh, family? Uh, father was British, mother was Ghanaian. I didn't know, you know, if they had children or what, but I, I it, you know, so I just kept asking and asking and asking, um, and eventually a friend of mine, uh, his mother said, you know what? We, we grew up across the street from them. And one thing led to another. And I ended up meeting, um, the granddaughter of this woman. And, uh, and it was, it was funny. It was, it was the day, the day, the night before I was supposed to leave, um, and come back to the U S. And, uh, you know, she, she said, I was really late in the evening, and she said, But if you, you know, um, if you come back tomorrow morning, I'll meet you and I can take you to see my grandmother. I can't guarantee that she'll want to talk with you, um, but we'll try. And, and she said, Put on your Sunday best. <laughs> All right. So, so indeed I did. Um, and we went over there, and, um, you know, she. Miss Knight was, was reluctant to speak with me. And she, you know, I could see her looking me over and, you know, what, what does this person want and, and why? And so I sort of pleaded my case and, you know, she, she said, okay, you know, come back tomorrow and I'll talk with you. So I went that, that was that was in in a period where you actually went to the airport office to change a ticket. So I went over to the <laughs> KLM office and changed my ticket um, and stayed on for a week more and interviewed her um, during the course of that week. Um, and then and then during subsequent um, research trips, um, sadly she passed away before um, the book was published. But um, I was um, able on my last trip to um, Accra to be able to give um, her granddaughter and daughter, a signed copy of the book, which made me really happy. Um, in other instances, um, you know, switching over to the second half of the, um, book, there's a case of an Afro German family. Um, the Annan family, Alfred Annan was the father, Frida Annan was the uh, German Jewish mother. And Mm -hmm. I had, you know, this huge over 500 page archive related to their, um, Situation first in Germany, and they were ultimately deported to the United Kingdom to Hull. Um, and although they had their life, you know, that what they wanted for their lives was to was to be sent back to the Gold Coast. Um, and so I had this one address for them in Hull, and so I went there. And when I when I arrived, I um, discovered that it had been bombed; that the apartment block had been bombed um, during the Hull Blitz during World War Two and um so i went over to the sort of equivalent of the county clerk office um and and started looking through the records there and found um, a birth certificate for their youngest daughter there and that gave me her name and then i eventually found a marriage certificate um and that marriage certificate indicated um that they were resident in cardiff And so then I started searching the internet for any descendants of the Annans in, in Cardiff. And, um, I started coming up with all of these Facebook returns, um, of people who clearly looked multiracial with the last name Annan, And I didn't have a Facebook account at that time, which is, this is the funny thing about how I actually started on Facebook. Um, was that in order to write to them, I had to sign up for a Facebook account. So I did. And I, I messaged all of them and explained who I was, what I was doing, what kinds of archival materials I had found. And then I got this kind of flurry of responses from different people saying, yeah, that, you know, that's, our, uh, that's my mom and my dad or that's my grandparents because there's multiple generations that are still living there. And so um, you know, I booked a, ticket, a train ticket to Cardiff, and the next day I went to Cardiff, and I was received by four of the children um, that were still alive. And I interviewed uh, three of them extensively. Um, one of them didn't wish to speak with me, which is fine, but I was able to interview three of them.
1: Um, and that
0: really was so critical because the archival trail for this family ended in 1941, um, mm-hmm. and I did not know what, what happened to them. And it was, um, you know, their, their, their story was so gripping and so moving in terms of the challenges that they had faced um, in, you know, in Germany as it was coming under Nazi control and then being um, uh, uh, deported to, to Britain um, and you know, I have all these letters that they were sending to the Colonial Office talking about you know, just how rough and horrid their lives were and how much um, they wanted to um, be sent to the Gold Coast but of course the Gold Coast uh, government um, would not uh, allow them and one of the interesting things was that the, the children had no idea that their parents had fought for over a decade to be sent to the Gold Coast. They had always um, thought that their, that the family in, in, in the Gold Coast didn't want them because their father had married um, a white woman. And I was actually able to show them this document that I have in which one of the family members in Accra had paid a small deposit to the colonial administration to secure um to secure their arrival should they be sent there um and I was, so I was able to show no, they, you know not only did your parents want to go there but the family there was 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 ready to receive you which was something that they you know that they hadn't known um and so that was really a wonderful thing to be able not only to have all of my answers uh, or all my questions answered by them in terms of what happened to the family Um, and what happened, especially to the parents, um, but also to be able to give them this, you know, this huge stack of archival documents that also was able to answer a lot of questions for them about their parents' lives and struggles.
1: And that really shows reciprocity, you know. uh, You've given them something, they gave you something in return. Is that part of your philosophy as a scholar?
0: Absolutely, that's the kind of key um, to, I think, the success of, uh, of this research project where um, people are really opening up to you about, um, you know, things that can oftentimes be very painful um, in their lives and, 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 and challenges that they face. Um, and, and so in, in going there and, and asking for people to kind of share with me um, those kinds of, of, of very personal details, um, to be able to give something back to them, uh, I think is, is extraordinarily important. And I think it also, um, builds a level of trust and shows how serious, I mean, when somebody shows up and they've got 500 pages of archival documents that were collected in, you know, um, you know, three or four different archives in Ghana and in the United Kingdom and material from Germany, you know, it shows I'm serious, right? Um, yes. And so I think that that's been really important. And then the other thing in terms of reciprocity has, has always been to to be able to say, you know, um, if you're not comfortable with me writing about certain things, I won't. Um, and it's not about, and, it, and it, because none of these things change the um, change the the outline of the story. I mean, certainly there were some things that were conveyed to me that I think probably would have made either a juicy or a more gripping read, but mm-hmm. they weren't fundamental to the story. And so when people would say, you know, X or Y happened, but please, you know, um, I would prefer if you didn't write about that, I always honored that, um, you know. And so I think that that kind of, um, ensuring that, you know, people feel like, um, they can be fully honest and open with you, um, but also be clear about what they're not comfortable having, um, printed, I think is, is really important. But I, but absolutely, I think the reciprocity thing is, is so important. And I think it's why, um, you know, it's people, when, when we write, we really do have a duty to go back to those places and to those people and provide them with a copy of the book or provide them, um, with copies of the materials that we've found because it's, you know, we, when we talk about you, you mentioned earlier sort of the issues that Africa faces, we think mm-hmm. about extractive industries all of the time, right? Right. Well, academia can be an extractive industry, just like mining, um, and all of the other ones. And if we don't give back, um, we can sit there and we can, um, You know, we can criticize Shell Oil in Nigeria and we can criticize, um, you know, uh, the diamond companies in South Africa. But, you know, we're no different if all we do is take and we don't we don't give anything back.
1: That's a valid point. So can you talk about the contributions of your work? What would you say would be the main things that, that you're adding to the scholarship?
0: So I think a couple, of, a couple of points, one I think is to really um, sort of in a very fine grained social history way um, to show the importance of race and race relations in a place like the Gold Coast Colony. So, you know, when we think about the literature on race in, in, in African history. Um, you know, we think of South Africa, we think of Southern Rhodesia, um, and, uh, we might think of Kenya and there are other places. We might think of a place like Sudan, um, or we might think of, you know, a place like Algeria, um, where questions of race have been more, um, central to, uh, to the scholarship. And I think for me, um, what was really important was really being able to show, Um, how race was operating in a really significant way in an administered colony in British West Africa that had a very tiny white population, um, but nonetheless came to um, uh, be organized in really significant ways along racial lines, um, but in ways that really um, didn't kind of tally up or add up with the kind of Infrastructure of everyday life and okay, the ways okay. in which Africans and Europeans um, were were you know so intimate with one another. And not I'm not just talking about sexual intimacy, but I'm just talking about the intimacy of everyday life in the domestic sphere and in in the workplace. I mean, Europeans were dependent on the Africans that surrounded them for everything, and that bred multiple forms of of dependency. Um, and in fact, I think that's one of the things that I hope I really the points that i you know make in the book is that um, sexual intimacy um, Isn't what bred other forms of intimacy, and I think the colonial administration failed to understand this um, It was it was these pre-existing webs of, of, of interracial dependency um, and sociability and and work Um that gave way to um, interracial sexual relationships. And so the, the administration set out to end these relationships, but did not materially change the kind of infrastructure of everyday life, which caused Africans and Europeans to always be in, in such close contact. Um, and so I think that that's really what I wanted to, to be able to, to demonstrate and show um, were all of these other forms of intimacy that existed um, in the colony, out of which um, came these interracial sexual relationships, um, and so that I think that's really uh, important. And one of the other things that I wanted to to really drive home um, was when we think about the literature on empire and sexuality, um, oftentimes the perspectives, concerns, um, and interests of colonizing powers are what come out in that literature, um, and uh, we often know far less about um, how colonized people thought about these relationships. And so as an Africanist historian, this was really important for me, was to be able to really show um, how, the, how people in the Gold Coast um, were thinking about these relationships, what their interests were in them, how, they're, you know, how they use them in terms of um, advancing certain kinds of political agendas, um, and And to really sort of make the argument that um, you know, their own social practices, um, interests, and perspectives were always at play in sort of shaping kind of how this sort of domain of interracial sexuality was unfolding in the colony that it, that that gold Coasters weren't simply um, reacting to what Europeans were doing. They would already historically wielded so much power. Within these kinds of relationships, because of the, the sort of historic nature of these relationships, dating back to a much earlier time period during the period of trade, and in particular the slave trade, um, and so this had already been a kind of arena in which um, gold coasters had had wielded a lot of power. And so, you know, when the 20th century came around, that wasn't something that they were just going to give up instantly because the you know colonial government up and decided that it no longer wanted um, European men to have these relationships with local women so really foregrounding African perspectives and interests and 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 um, agency within that realm was something that was really important and then I would think the other thing that was also I think a significant intervention um, was to shift to the other to the other side of the story So when we think about empire and sexuality typically, we're, we're reading about and we're thinking about European men with indigenous women um, or in the context of the you know the Caribbean and the American colonies indigenous and enslaved women but rarely do we think about relationships between um, African men and European women unless you know in the, in the context of the settler colonies you have the work that's been done on um, the black peril scares but that, that that's that's work that's really done on the, a specter right not actually on the relationships as they existed only as they existed as a form of paranoia in the in the in the settler imagination um and so I, I really wanted to think about okay what did relationships between African men and European women in West Africa look like during this time period in order to write that history, what I had to do was expand, um, my scope to, um, to Europe, where, okay, these, okay. where these West African men were. Um, and largely during the um, interwar period, you're looking at um, West African men who are working as sailors on um, the shipping lines that are plying the Atlantic Ocean. And mm-hmm. many of them are settling um, in places like Liverpool, Hull, Cardiff, London, um, and, and they're marrying or having significant relationships with white women there. Um, and I should note that part of what drives them to settle in these British ports is because there's discrimination in the wage system um, where shipping lines will um, uh, hire men at a much lower wage when they sign on in the colonies and much higher um, wages when they sign in the me- on in the Metropole. Because they assume that white men are signing on in the metropole and black men are signing on in the colonies, so this was a strategy to get around that. Um, and so they took domicile in, in you know, in, in the different British ports. Um, and so I really wanted to be able to kind of get at that history, and it's it's actually quite significant because in 1919, when you have the British race riots throughout these ports, um, and black men are beaten on the streets. Um, in part because of their relationships with white women. This is something that captures the attention of people in the Gold Coast um, And it really triggers this kind of political critique of the sexual hypocrisy of colonial rule How is it that, that that black men can be beaten on the streets of Liverpool for having relations with white women? When white men have been here for centuries along the coast having their way with our women and it's never given rise to violence and then it and then it sort of moves beyond that kind of critique of sexual hypocrisy to actually um, begin to deliver a kind of anti-colonial argument um, about the um, the the lack of moral fitness that white men have for colonial rule. Um, you know that they that they are um, that that, that it, they are the real sexual menace. Um, and I, I I sort of use the term white peril to talk about mm-hmm. that. Um, and to talk about the way that this becomes a kind of, I think, very early form of of um, anti-colonial unrest and a kind of very uh, um, potent critique about the moral legitimacy of British colonial rule. And part of it has to do with the the sexual licentiousness of white men, Um, and Mm -hmm. part of it has to do with a kind of critique of the fact that many of these white men, um, you know, Abandon their their mixed-race children. So if, if these men can't even take care of their own children um, You know, why should they be put in um, a, a position? You know kind of paternalistic position to, to take care of the rest of the colonial world So they really you know, so Gold Coast anti-colonial nationalists really begin to focus in on this question of, of interracial sex um, as a as a kind of key component of an of Uh, an an emerging anti-colonial critique. So that's I think another really important um, uh, point. But you only get to that again by moving outside and integrating this history of these relationships between black men and white women um, into this other more familiar history of relationships with white men and African women.
1: And can you talk about the title, Crossing the Color Line, and its relationship to W.E.B. Du Bois?
0: Yes. So, um, you know, the, of course, when we, when we think about the, the color line and we think about Du Bois, we think about, um, you know, the kind of, the, the, the sort of shorter, the shorter part of that quote, you know, which is that, you know, that the, the, the challenge of the 20th century, the greatest challenge is, is, is going to be the color line. But if you read on, um, it's not it's not a kind of it's not it's not the the problem that he talks about is not a problem of the U.S. It's a global problem. And so he goes on to talk about all of the places um, in the world, including um, West Africa, where that is a problem. And so it was really trying to um, use this kind of familiar idea of the color line and apply it to a place. That certainly Du Bois intended it to be applied to um, and he had the wisdom to understand that even in a place like West Africa where there was a tiny white um, Population that the color line was a a huge problem Um, but so that's the color line part of it the crossing part of it was really wanting to be able to on the one hand show the way in which the color line is the, the various ways in which the colonial administration goes about drawing this color line right
1: and the very mm-hmm. fact
0: that it had to be drawn says something about the kind of incohate nature of it in the, it's in in the first instance right that it didn't just uh-huh. sort of exist there naturally that in fact the the way in which um the European presence had historically been established in the Gold Coast meant that actually um the there things were quite fluid across, the racial, uh, across race lines. And so there was a lot of work that had to be done to draw this color line, right? And to, and to make it visible to people. Um, and even still, it was crossed continually, right? And so the, the book really is, is not just about the color line, but about the multiple ways in which it was constantly being transgressed by Africans and Europeans alike. Um, you know, and I use, again, I use the realm of interracial sexuality, um, to make that argument, but, but it, it was not just being crossed, um, in terms of, of intimate relationships or sexual intimacy or sexual, it was being crossed, um, in, in forms of everyday life that happened outside of the bedroom, um, as well. And that were just as significant.
1: And how do you see your work maybe addressing issues today that plague the U.S.?
0: Well, I think, for, you know, for me, the, when, I, when I think about, um, for instance, when I think about people's reaction to the book and um, why I think um, it seems to have captured people's attention, at least from, from what people say to me, Um, I mean, of course, you know, one could make the argument that, yes, it's well-written, it's rigorously researched, um, there's compelling stories and all of that. And, um, sure. But I think, to be quite honest and frank with you, I think there's something that's far beyond that um, that has to do with the moment that we're living in being a moment of of such deep racial divide, of, of such deep um, racism, uh, a moment in which um, white supremacy, um, w- which has always been with us, but, but is so much more visible and evident where the kind of veneer um, that I think has kept things from bubbling over has been ripped off Um, and we see all of this stuff coming out and I think there's a way in which these stories of interracial families, um, (laughs) it, it, it captures people's imagination because on the one hand, um, we know we live in such a racially divided world and I think we're fascinated by these stories um, in which we see people crossing what has historically been the greatest divide in our country? And of course those crossings are not always perfect um, And a lot of times those crossings reinscribe inscribe racial power but when when we see instances um, of uh, especially I would say of, 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 of black and white unions um, in which those relationships seem to actually be loving Caring, lasting, affectionate. I think this is why um, the story of um, of the of the loving couple, you know, in the United States, um, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, is such a touchstone for us. When we see those examples, I think it captures our attention because we 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 realize that this thing is not insurmountable, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it gives it gives us a certain kind of hope. And again, I, I just want to go back to say that. Not, not every story in my book um, gives us that sense of hope, but some of them do. And I think that that is why, you know, stories around sort of interracial relationships always capture people's attention um, because, because we kind of innately know that this is, this is our, biggest, our biggest challenge. Um, and so I think that that's, to me, this book about these stories that take place, you know, in, in colonial Ghana and, you know, in, in, in a place like Liverpool or Cardiff, um, which might seem sort of remote and far away, but they're actually just as relevant to the United States and to other places in the world, because these are, these are questions that all of us um, are, are facing.
1: Thank you. Is there anything you like to bring out about your work that we haven't touched upon? Are there like book clubs, book discussions? You know, are you part of a growing trend now to talk about interracial relationships in the African context?
0: Well, I think I mean I, I certainly think that this that this book is is part of a growing body of scholarship that is attending to the question of race outside of the settler colonies. So I think of immediately I would think of Jamima Pierre's work, which is an anthropological study, although it's certainly historically engaged, it's called The Predicament of Blackness, um, okay. you know, about sort of race in contemporary Ghana, um, and uh, there's, you know, there's Bruce Hall's work on the Sahel in West Africa, um, you know, there's uh, uh, Chuki El Hamel's um, beautiful book on Black Morocco. So there's, there, you know, I think that this is a small but growing body of, 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 of literature that is speaking um, to these questions. Um, I think that part of what, um, is potentially, I think, um, unique about the book is, I I think the way in which it really strives to, um, tell the, tell the stories of, of everyday people in, in a really kind of, um in a way that gives you a sense of of what their their lives were like um and the challenges that they faced and again just going back to what we were just talking about i think that that's what gives this book its um why it seems to resonate with people today um is because it 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 it, it i think it goes beyond the surface and it really gives you a sort of sense of of the challenges that people faced and the ways in which they surmounted them um, and, you know, I I think that especially, you know, in the context of Ghana, where um, I think on the one hand, people recognize that there's a long history of these relationships. Um, you know, people are familiar with the big tra- Afro-European trading families that come out of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, but, you know, I had a lot of friends who, you know, when they saw the book, they were really surprised. Like, wow, I didn't imagine you'd actually be able to write an entire book about this for the colonial period, um, and I think for a lot of people, it seemed to be something that had been sort of consigned to um, I don't know, like the sort of like a dirty little secret of colonialism, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. And and to actually see um, kind of how central this question was, I think, has been a very interesting kind of eye opener for um, a lot of people that have read the book thus far, especially. Um, in Ghana and sort of really beginning to see in the ways in which um, These kinds of questions really were were so central to sort of how the history of colonialism um, unfolded there um, and and I think you know, I do think it's really important to um, You know in, in the wake of the book um, and I also I did this uh, some time ago I, I, I worked on one of these popular genealogy programs. It's called who do you think you are they have a, a version of it here in the United States um, where I helped a young man who uh, is uh, sort of is a British DJ and television host and, you know, he makes television programs. Uh, his name is Reggie Yates, fabulous young man. Um, and I helped him trace his family roots in, in, in West Africa and, and along the way we discovered that his great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather were British. And so this, this ended up airing, it aired on the BBC and has subsequently been replayed you know, over the last, I think, two years. Um, and that has, I think, also sparked a lot of public interest in this history, aspects of their mixed race family history. Um, and so I think that there is a growing public awareness um, of, of these stories and the fact that um, that this history can be accessible that you can find out about, um, you know, about members of your family, and I think especially in the United Kingdom, where sort of the ancestry.com thing and family history thing is so big. But one of the things that we've realized over time is that, um, you know, it 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 does it's it's quite popular um, and accessible and big, especially for um, sort of white British people. But the access to, um, you know, those databases and sources and just knowing about them for people of African ancestry in Britain, there seems to be some level of, of, of there, there, there seems to be some disparity there. And so that has been one of the things that I've really enjoyed um, being able to do is to work with people and to show them, okay, you know, um, you know here, here's what's available for free. Here's what requires, um, uh, you know, a membership to these ancestry websites, and mm-hmm. here's what's available. Um, and that that doing this kind of work, although it does involve some um, financial output, is not completely inaccessible. Um, so I, I think that has been something that I've, I've quite enjoyed, actually, is being able to um, assist people to the best of my ability. You can't always do it. There's sometimes people give you a name and, and, you know, nothing turns up. But um, I think that the awareness of of mixed race family histories is something that I think has also come out of the book and out of this earlier documentary work that I did.
1: Okay, can you tell us a little bit about where you are going as a scholar in terms of future work? Yeah,
0: so right now I... um, I've carved out a trilogy um, for myself. So three book projects that span the pre-colonial, colonial, colonial, and post-independence period that all take up in their own different ways questions around race, around identity, around blackness, the body. Um, And so the the first one is um, Somatic Blackness, the History of the Body and Race Making in Pre-Colonial Ghana. The second one is black on white, um, articulating race on identity in the Gold Coast press, and then the third one is becoming black stars, um, uh, race the sort of the uh, what is it, race and state politics in twentieth century Ghana, um, and so those uh, those are the three titles. For me, what what these books are really doing or what these projects are doing are, are allowing me to really revisit the kinds of questions that I didn't end up exploring so centrally in crossing the color line because of the way that I followed the archival thread and that it, it led me to pursue these questions about interracial sexual relationships. Really now wanting to return back to some of those foundational questions that I encountered over 20 years ago in Ghana about, what what does it mean to be black in Ghana? Um, how how are the boundaries of blackness um, drawn and redrawn over time? How does blackness during the colonial period become re-articulated as a political identity in in opposition to white British colonial rule, and then how during the era of independence and thereafter? Um, it you know does blackness get constructed in relationship to questions around citizenship and national identity in Ghana and and the right to hold political power and for me that that last piece is really central in terms of this question of political power and racial identity and I think that's something that comes out um around the the presidency of JJ Rawlings um who was mixed race in Ghana. Um, so that's that's sort of where my my work is taking me now.
1: Well, we look forward to more wonderful scholarship that encourages us to think and allows us to see how a scholar is able to weave together many stories uh, using different sources and you know, for great production. So congratulations again on crossing the color line, being shortlisted for the Fagan Oliver prize.
0: Thank you so much. It's wonderful talking with you, Dawn. And uh, I hope in the future we'll we'll at least have one or two more conversations.
1: Yes, I hope so too. Thank you. Thank you.